So Psalm 51, we're reading from, and in the Church Bibles you'll find that on page 457. So starting from verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely as I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will, will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you, and uh, particularly uh, good to see anyone who wasn't able to be with us yesterday. I hope that you'll catch up. I'm sure that you will. Uh, but uh, good to see those who are back again. Uh, I've had a terrific weekend. It's been lovely to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for the warmth of your welcome, uh, which sort of contrasts with other things outside, but uh, the warmth of your welcome has been terrific. I've loved it. Friends, uh, please turn in your Bible to uh, one, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, if you have booklets from yesterday, uh, the notes for what we're looking at are on page 13. 13. Uh, and uh, uh, the passage is also printed uh, inside the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the papers that you've received. Uh, yesterday we heard the words at the very end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, which uh, we saw were literally the, this, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So what will happen now? is the question. What would be the consequences of God's king who'd experienced God's goodness towards him in such a huge way over many years, having now done something that was evil in the eyes of the Lord? Well, some time passed, perhaps a year, perhaps a bit more, 
after the crimes that we read about yesterday in chapter 11 and at what must have been judged to be just the right time, look at the beginning of chapter 12, the very first words, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was the prophet. Uh, He first appeared in this history uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, He was the one who conveyed the Lord's great promise to David that we've heard about already this morning, uh, rather graphically. Uh, The Lord sending Nathan to David, this time must have reminded David of that extraordinary promise that God had made, your throne shall be established forever, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Yeah, that's right, that is God's promise, but the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. What was going to happen now? Well, Nathan, obedient prophet that he was, came to David. You see that in verse 1 again of chapter 12. And he began to speak. He brought a situation before the king. And the story that we're about to hear from Nathan uh, is so well known that we easily forget that David didn't yet know its true nature. Uh, It was an important role for the king in those days to administer justice among his people. Uh, It would have seemed that Nathan had brought a case for the king to consider. It's the kind of thing that a king did. And this is how Nathan began. There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought, he had bought. So we've got two men, neighbours, in the same city. But their circumstances were very different. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man's possessions, you see them described there, a very large number of sheep and cattle. He simply had them. He was fortunate. The poor man's only possession, one little ewe lamb, he had bought. However, the poor man delighted in his one possession. You see how it goes on uh, in verse uh, 3? He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. The poor man, it's a lovely little picture really, isn't it? Uh, The poor man had a happy home life. Rich in kindness and warmth and good relationships. And the little ewe lamb was just part of a love, it was sort of like a loved member of the family. Now, in a moment, we'll have reason to notice three important things about this scene and the poor man and his family. First, the poor man's home life was characterised by different forms of giving. It was a generous home life. The poor man gave of his food, of his drink, of his affection. And shortly, we're going to see someone else whose characteristic behaviour was taking. Second, the delightful and intimate innocency of the poor man with his little ewe lamb is described uh, in terms 
uh, slept in his arms that can be used in a rather different sense, as we will see. And then thirdly, the ewe lamb was like a daughter to him. The original language in which this was originally spoken, the word for daughter is bath. Does that remind you of anyone? Now those little subtleties in the story were not noticed by David, but they were certainly deliberate, deliberate elements in this brilliantly, brilliantly crafted story. At this stage, however, David was simply hearing about a poor man who was nonetheless contented and happy in the warmth and love of his home life. This happy situation had been shattered by something that happened in the other man's life. Pick it up in verse 4. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And again, there are three things that will soon take on great significance. First, the visitor came to the rich man. That little verb, came, occurs three times in a single sentence. He came to the rich man and created the circumstances for the rich man's crime. Uh, If you were with us yesterday, you might remember that King David had a number of people who came to him. You can glance back at verse 4 of chapter 11, verse 7 of chapter 11, uh, to get the point that I'm making. Second, the rich man took. The rich man thought it would be uh, a pity to uh, take anything from his own vast flocks and herds. That would amount to giving So he took the little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. You might remember someone else who recently took, particularly if you were with us yesterday. And third, the rich man not only took the ewe lamb, he killed it. Now it's a terrible story. It's a story of a greedy man. It's a story of a cynical man, it's a story of a destructive man. Uh, There was absolutely no moral ambiguity in the situation that Nathan presented it to the king. The only question really was what should be done? What does justice demand in this situation? What what, what should be done to sort out this situation? And it was the king's job to to decide things like that. Well, David, Uh, King David uh, thought, of course, that Nathan was presenting to him uh, an actual incident, something that had actually happened. And so he did what a king should do. He pronounced judgment. You see in verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, certainly if you've been with us yesterday, this outburst from King David takes us by surprise. Do you remember yesterday uh, in chapter 11, through all the turbulent events of that chapter, we've actually seen no display of emotion from David at all. 
unless perhaps you consider the, the lust with which it all began. He was disturbingly calm and unnervingly calculating right through, even when Joab, do you remember yesterday, anticipated that he might become angry, but he didn't. But now, now there was nothing calm or calculating about his judgment of the rich man and his conduct. David was furious. He invoked the name of God as surely as the Lord lives, he said. This, if we'd been reading carefully and we've been trying to read carefully, this is the first time that David seems to have thought about the Lord for a long time. But now, by the living God, he pronounced the death sentence on the rich man. Is this the same David we've been hearing about? There are two problems with David's judicial conduct. The first is that it was unbalanced. This is not really what justice called for. It was what David's anger called for. He was furious and he wanted, he wanted the rich man to pay in a way that would match David's fury. Now, without indulging in any psychoanalysis here, but it seems reasonable to me to deduce that David was a troubled man. It seems to me, it looks to me as uh, like a man who was overcompensating for his own accusing conscience by lashing out at the wickedness of someone else. Have you ever seen that? Perhaps you've experienced it. When your own conscience is troubling you, you become terribly self-righteous about the, uh, the wrongs of other people. The second problem, of course, was the dazzling hypocrisy of David's furious judgment. The judge was himself a criminal whose deeds did deserve death. In one of the most dramatic moments in the history of the world, when you understand what was at stake, the prophet Nathan faced the king whom the Lord had chosen and he pronounced the most devastating words that David ever heard. Then Nathan said to David, we're in verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I imagine that there was a silence as these shattering words sank into David's consciousness. David, you are that man. Nathan's story had not been a report about someone else's crime. It had been a mirror revealing David's own wickedness. You are that man. David was the rich man. David had taken from the poor man. David had killed for his own self-protection. David, you are that man. And after a few moments, Nathan continued with the most shattering speech David ever heard. He began like this. Uh, we're in verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says... 
I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah and as if this was, and if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. You see, David had experienced God as the one who gave and gave and gave to him. And all that he'd given had been God's gift to him. And the Lord's boundless generosity to David hadn't yet come to an end. This was the rich man, you see, who had very large number of sheep and cattle in Nathan's story. The God who gave so much to David now asked why he had so wickedly taken. And David's crimes are now dealt with in reverse order. First came the murder, verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Do you notice there that the ultimate seriousness of David's crime was what lay behind it? He had despised the word of the Lord. That is, he had despised the promise that the Lord had made to him. In his wickedness, he had despised the extraordinary promise of God he despised the grace of God despised is a strong word we're going to hear it again in a moment throughout the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11 I doubt that King David was even conscious of despising the word of the Lord but by doing what was evil in God's sight he displayed what was in his heart the crime was evidence for the even more profound offence of despising the word of the Lord, the Lord who had given him so much. The punishment followed, verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. The punishment is going to correspond to the crime. The violence that will never depart from David's house corresponds to the violence with which David had dealt with Bathsheba and Uriah. Could this be the moment at which the great promise concerning David's house was forfeited? Is this the Lord rejecting David just as years earlier He had rejected Saul. What would happen to the Lord's great promise now that God's king had despised the promise? Now, before we can answer that question, we must hear what the Lord, the God of Israel, had to say that day about David's other crime. And the shift focuses from uh, the murder to the adultery. The second crime is stated more briefly than the first. As I read this, you'll notice I've changed the punctuation a little bit. I think this is what it means. The, the, the meaning doesn't change very much. But uh, I think it goes like this. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. 
Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. This is, ter- this is terrible. You notice uh, what God says here, to despise the Lord's word is to despise the Lord himself. You have despised me, says God. This again was the ultimate seriousness of what David had done. The evidence this time was that he'd committed adultery, taken the wife of Uriah. And again, the punishment corresponded to the crime. The Lord will take David's wives, just as David had taken Bathsheba, and give them to um, uh, one who is close to you. Uh, Literally, it is uh, your neighbour, just as the rich man had been a neighbour to the poor man and Uriah had been a neighbour to David. However, unlike David's secret hidden wickedness that night, which he went to extreme lengths to keep hidden, this thing will be done in broad daylight before all Israel. This is horrible. This is horrible. And the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, and indeed into the books of Kings, will tell the terrible story anticipated in these two, these two punishments pronounced here. David's house, David's household, will be deeply troubled by violence for the rest of his life and indeed for generations to come, right through to the end of two kings. A great deal of evil will arise from David's house, beginning with a terrible story in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel of the rape of his daughter Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. That is my, we mentioned this yesterday, I alluded to this, that I think is the most horrible story in the whole of the Bible. The neighbour spoken of, the one close to him uh, spoken of in this punishment is going to turn out to be another one of David's sons, Absalom. You'll read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And as David heard Nathan that day, the word of the Lord set before him this terrible future. David's evil deeds are going to have consequences. He thought he could control things. He thought he could see that they didn't have consequences. He thought he could fix things up. He thought he could arrange things. But he couldn't. His evil deeds will have consequences. And at long last, focus your eyes on verse 13, at long last, David was broken. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Sometime later, David expanded that brief statement. In the original, it's just two words. I have sinned against the Lord. He expanded those two words into Psalm 51 that was read to us a few moments ago, which profoundly expresses what those two words imply. I have sinned against the Lord. The brevity of uh, of David's confession here as we hear it should discourage us from efforts to evaluate the quality of David's response to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord did its work on David. 
the word that he heard from God shattered him. His confession was really no more than the echo from his own heart of the shattering word that the Lord had spoken to him. I have sinned. Indeed, he had. Against the Lord. That's the wrong that lay behind his crimes. He had despised the Lord and his word. I think we should be very slow to give David any credit for this response. This man, for all this time, especially if you were with us yesterday, I think you'll appreciate this, for all this time, after all the damage that he'd done, after all the hurt that he'd inflicted, showing no remorse whatsoever, but at last he was shattered by the word he heard from God. The wonder is that the word of the Lord could bring about this response from this man. Nothing else could. Do you need this to happen to you? Do you have a heart that has despised the God who has been so good to you and to me? We need this experience of the word of God shattering us. Hearing the word of God that brings us to our knees. Hearing God's word that brings us to respond, I have sinned against the Lord. Well now, the most astounding words in this whole little episode that we've been looking at this weekend, were heard by David. It's the second half of verse 13. It's just half a verse. Then Nathan the prophet said to David, the Lord himself has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I hope you're a little bit uneasy there's a scandal here isn't there this is the scandal of God's grace how is it possible indeed I want to ask if we've listened to chapter 11 and got to the how is it right that God should take away the sin of David it's not as though he had any excuse David, of all people, knew exactly what he was doing. Nor can we pretend, as I think David tried to pretend, that the whole thing was harmless. People died. And yet, the Lord who had seen it all, the Lord in whose eyes what David had done was evil, the Lord who had sent Nathan to tell David what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the Lord took away David's sin. That means that the Lord would not hold David's sin against him. David would not bear the penalty that he deserved. 
that he had in his earlier furious outburst unwittingly pronounced on his own crime. You're not going to die. This did not mean that David's sin would have no consequences. Indeed, the terrible things that we've just heard about in verses 10 down to 12 all actually happened in due course. What did not happen was what happened to Saul. The Lord's steadfast love did not depart from David, just as God promised it wouldn't. The Lord did not reject David. However, the terrible consequences of David's crimes began with the son who'd been born out of the adultery. Verse 14. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now friends, this is terrible. And it really is troubling, isn't it? David's wickedness would be responsible for the death of the child to be born. And this we're reading here was God's doing? Yeah, it was. And I don't have comfortable answers to the questions and objections that we all want to raise at this point. Nor do I want to silence them. And we'll be thinking a little bit more about this later on this morning. However, I do want to say that we should be slow to pass self-righteous judgment on God's ways. We do not always understand what God does, but the one who knows everything is righteous in all his ways. The reality is that reality is greater and more reliable than our discomfort. We do need to take into account eternity. We do need to take into account heaven when we think about that little child whom God took from David. Well, the word of the Lord that had been delivered to David, that's been done. The prophet's job was done. Nathan went home, we read in verse 15, and the terrible word of the Lord began to come to pass. You see, verse 15, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. That's the point at which we're going to pause. And those ominous words should impress on us just how serious sin is. See, King David's sin was like all human sin. It had consequences. We can't always understand the consequences of our evil acts and there certainly are times when we hate the consequences. We're going to think a little bit more about that uh, later on this morning in the next session. Here we should understand that as the word of God exposed David's sin, so the word of God exposes all of us as sinners. And after all we've heard through chapter 11 and now uh, into this first part of chapter 12, we must feel the shattering force of the word of God 
You see, it comes to us this morning too. You are the man. You are the woman. And only when we understand the reality and seriousness of sin are we ready to wonder at God's disturbing grace. Can you believe it? He took away David's sin. David's sin did not do all the damage that it could have done. But only because God was gracious. David's sin did not destroy God's promise, but only because God was gracious. And for that reason, we are privileged to know the son of David, whose name was Jesus. He was named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, later on this morning, next time, we're going to see that this grace of God was more staggering still and more shocking than you could even imagine. Let's pray together.